Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. On today's show, we continue our series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. This past Monday marked 82 years since President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which led to the incarceration of more than 120,000 Japanese Americans between 1942 and 1946. In San Francisco, survivors and allies took the opportunity of Remembrance Day to call for action on current injustices. At an annual event at the Kabuki Theater in Japantown, speakers and honorees advocated for Palestinian rights in Gaza and the West Bank. The San Francisco Chronicle wrote about keynote speaker and today's guest, Reverend Michael Yoshi, linking the Palestinians' plight with that of the interned Japanese Americans. Reverend Michael Yoshi is former pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda, California. The church was founded in 1898 to minister to newly arriving immigrants from Japan and for many years was a center of activity for the Japanese American Christian community in Alameda. During World War II, most Buena Vista church members were interned in Topaz, Utah, one of several concentration camps set up during the war. That history profoundly shaped the church's mission. Perceived as the, quote, face of the enemy during World War II, Japanese Americans were obviously very sensitive to the similar dynamic taking place against Arabs and Muslims immediately following the 9-11 attacks. The church opened its doors to its Afghan neighbors and invited an imam to speak on that Sunday immediately following 9-11 to provide a Muslim perspective on the unfolding events. In 2009, the Buena Vista United Methodist Church launched a partnership with the Palestinian village of Wadi Fokwin, located in the West Bank, just southwest of Bethlehem. The partnership has been a true interfaith friendship between Christian United Methodists and Palestinian Muslims. The group Friends of Wadi Fokin also includes other United Methodist partners. Reverend Michael Yoshi, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you, Rose. We're also joined by Maggie Tokuda Hall, a Jewish-Japanese-American author of many books, including Love in the Library, named a Best Picture Book of 2022 by BookPage, School Library Journal, Journal, Booklist, and Publishers Weekly. Love in the Library is the true story of Maddie, Maggie Tokuda Hall's grandparents, Toma and George, who met in the Minidoka concentration camp in Jerome, Idaho. Toma was the camp librarian in Minidoka, and every day George would go in and check out huge stacks of books he had no intention of reading so he could flirt with her. Maggie had no intention of telling this story publicly until Donald Trump took office and signed the Muslim travel ban executive order. In November, Maggie Tokuda Hall wrote a piece for Densho.org called Justifying the Unjustifiable, Why Japanese Americans Must Stand with Palestine. She writes, It is with these two facets of my own identity and harmony that I feel a deep sense of obligation to speak clearly about what is happening in Gaza right now, which is that it's genocide, that the Nakba, which started in 1948, has simply never ended, and that it stands in opposition to my values as a Jew and also as a Japanese American. Our words, our framing around this issue matter because it is only with international pressure that Israel will end its wholesale slaughter of civilians, of children. 
as Vivian Silver, an Israeli peace activist who was killed by Hamas on October 7th, has said, you cannot cure killed babies with more dead babies. We need peace. Hi, Maggie. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to ask both of you about how you got to this place, about how your family history has really shaped your views on your thoughts about what is happening in Gaza and the West Bank. I mean, it's a big question, but we have time. Uh, So, Reverend Yoshi, why don't we start with you? Well, I would say, um, first of all, you know, I had the opportunity to be part of the Jesus movement back in the early 80s. Uh, testifying uh, in 1981 at the hearings that were in San Francisco. And um, through that period of time, um, able to see the fruits of that labor of people testifying uh, before the congressional hearings as the Civil Liberties Act was passed in uh, the summer of 1988, apologizing to Japanese Americans. I think that experience of of uh, feeling um, a collective sense of empowerment of our stories being told, our narrative being heard, has translated over for me as I've met Palestinians over the years, both Palestinians here in this country, but Palestinians there, particularly in our relationship with Palestinian Christians and then our Muslim partnership with the Friends of Wadi Fukin. Um, hearing their stories, um, you know, has reverberated volumes for me in terms of my own um, sense of, of um, you know, the historical importance of our narrative being affirmed somewhere. And uh, I appreciate what Maggie was saying about the the Nakba in 1948 has been the collective remembrance of all Palestinians, the diaspora Palestinians, as well as those living within the 48 borders and uh, those in the West Bank and Gaza, they can all refer back to the Nakba as their uh, collective remembrance. And unfortunately, here in our country, that collective remembrance is not part of common history. And that's something that's a key piece that needs to be understood by all Americans and Japanese Americans as well. Maggie, what about you? Uh, You have such an interesting background. You are Jewish and Japanese-American. You've written a book about your grandparents who were interned, and then you wrote this piece for Densho called Mm -hmm. Justifying the Unjustifiable. And in that piece, you do write about what you learned as a child about your Jewish and your Japanese background. So can you talk a bit about how that has shaped your views and how you got to this place today? Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, being both Jewish and holding sort of the generational memory of the Holocaust and being Japanese American and having, you know, my grandparents met the way that they did, I was raised with an understanding that governments are not necessarily just um, and that we should be deeply suspicious of any time a single group is singled out for the interest of safety, that that is never really what is happening, that that is usually based in racism and political expedience and cruelty, that these are not, um, that ever, like ever, anytime an entire group of people is maligned, that you should be very suspicious because no group of people is a monolith and no group of people is inherently guilty for any crime real or imagined. And so, um, you know, even though I was raised very pro-Israel and understanding, I was raised with the understanding that like that was my country and that the Israeli flag was the Jewish flag. 
Um, I was still raised with the idea that you should not trust governments and you certainly shouldn't trust them uh, when they give their reasoning for cruelty. And so when I went to college and sort of was introduced to the word Palestine for the first time, frankly, it was not even something I was aware of. That's how sort of one-sided my education in that regard had been. It was really easy to transfer that understanding onto that situation and to see the grave and horrific injustice that has been done upon the people, the indigenous people of Palestine for almost 100 years. How has your family responded to the work that you are now doing and specifically this this piece that you wrote? I mean, generally speaking, my family is very supportive and will never stand in the way of me voicing my opinions. Um, I would say like my mother was really proud of the Den Show piece that I wrote and I was really glad for that. Um, and my dad had feelings about it. <laughs> um, but you know, even as he was expressing those to me, it was really clear that he would never stand in the way of me saying what I believe. And he understands that I don't come upon my convictions casually. And so um, we actually very recently had a, a much more open discussion than we've ever had in our lives about Israel and what it means to us. And I was really surprised that we actually are much closer in our ideology than I would have guessed, given the way that I was raised but he wasn't the only Jew who raised me. I also went to Hebrew school. I have extended family that are much more staunchly Zionist than he is. And so, you know, within my direct family, it's been very supportive. And outside of that, I've had a few discussions that were more heated, but I would never say that it got disrespectful or, uh, you know, cumbersome. Can we talk a bit about where we are right now? I mean, when you think about what happened on October 7th and Hamas killing 1,200 Israelis, we've got, according to the Israeli government, 100 hostages remain in Hamas captivity. And since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed to think about so many children losing their limbs, not even children, but adults, but half of Gaza's 2 million population is children. So we've got 1 million children. So many have lost their limbs. Uh, Reverend Yoshi, I mean, when you stand back and think about what has happened since then, and you bring up the context, and of course that is so important, but just over the course of these past few months, to think of 29,000 people being killed... Can you talk about that? Well, it's absolutely horrific. And uh, I think the, the biggest tragedy is when we have uh, calls for ceasefire and you have these arguments around uh, why we cannot do a ceasefire. It's, it's very clear that uh, this so-called war on Hamas is not a war on Hamas. It's a war on the Palestinian people. And that includes uh, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and people in 48 as well. Um, and I think the dehumanization of Palestinians and the disregard for their lives is is on display, particularly in the American government. Um, I believe that uh, there's some lip service that's been given from our administration on on um, you know sharing their concerns about humanitarian uh, aid needing to be uh, moved into Gaza, but uh, it's it's just inconscionable the ways in which uh, our uh, government 
is um, dismissing the lives of Palestinians and especially children, uh, mothers who were pregnant and, uh, and mothers as well, you know, that are that are part of the majority of the casualties that have taken place. But I do think we cannot talk about this without looking at pre-October 7th because there's too much focus on this being kind of the event. This event is is opening up people's consciousness for sure, but our focus just on October 7th um, is a disservice to the Palestinian cause that has been going on for many years. Maggie, what would you, when we'll talk about that in a minute, but Maggie, what would you like to add about what has happened since October 7th? I mean, I would just like to agree that starting this conversation on October 7th is a real disservice to, uh, you know, the 750,000 displaced Palestinians that started in 1948. But I would also like to say that I came of age um, after 9-11. I was a senior in high school when we declared war in Iraq. The very first political rally I ever went to was, you know, an anti-war protest. It is not unfamiliar territory, I think, for a lot of millennials to feel like there was an attack and then a completely unwarranted, unjust response comes down upon a civilian group of people that do not deserve it and should not have been paying the price for the violence committed by a minority. And it is... You know, I think it's very American to always project our histories onto other countries. But I think in this case, particularly because it's being committed with our government's wholehearted support and with our funding, it's impossible not to see the parallels of these two wars, which were both unjust and both punished people of a certain group because we feel more comfortable killing people from Muslim majority countries than we do in other places. And it's racist. It's Islamophobic. It's, you know, I don't mean to flatten all Gazans into, you know, uh, I know that they're not all Muslim, but still, I think that there is a real, real hatred in our country for people from Muslim majority countries. And it's impossible to watch it and not see that as start so starkly today we are talking about remembrance day and on remembrance day many japanese americans have been calling for justice in palestine and a ceasefire and human rights for palestinians today we are joined by the reverend michael yoshi former pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda. They were founded in 1898 to minister to newly arriving immigrants from Japan. In 2009, the Buena Vista United Methodist Church launched a partnership with the Palestinian village of Wadi Fokin. Today, we're also joined by Maggie Tokuda Hall, a Jewish Japanese American author of many books, including Love in the Library. It is the true story of her grandparents, Toma and George, who met in the Minidoka concentration camp in Jerome, Idaho. In November, Maggie Tokuda Hall wrote a piece for Densho.org called Justifying the Unjustifiable Why Japanese Americans Must Stand with Palestine. And you can find their work at yourcallradio.org. If you'd like to join today's conversation, if you have any questions or comments for the Reverend Yoshi or Maggie, We'd love to hear from you, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. Reverend Yoshi, what is 
been your experience in discussing these issues with people who might not know about the context or as you say, you know, people who say this cannot stop because, you know, Hamas has to be obliterated. I mean, what are those conversations like for you? Well, I, I think when we uh, talk with different people, of course, you have to begin with where people are starting from. And some um, are coming from no awareness at all about the historic struggle for Palestinians for their freedom, uh, while others come f- from filtered lenses where they have assumptions about things as well. And others come from places where they feel they've heard some things, but kind of have a suspicion that they haven't heard the reality because media doesn't really cover uh, Palestinian voices much here in this country. Uh, so I think it depends on, you know, where people are starting from in their particular point of conversation. Um, but the key piece that I continue to try to uh, emphasize again that this didn't start with October 7th. And uh, as Maggie has pointed out, and, and as I have spoken uh, at length about this, that we have to go back to the Nakba of 1948. And as Japanese Americans, when we understand that our story was suppressed, our own history of the mass incarceration uh, was a fight to be able to tell that story, um, we have to understand that this has been the struggle for Palestinians as well. When, you know, upwards of 15,000 people were killed, uh, when 750,000 uh, persons were expelled as uh, refugees across the uh, across the region and around the world, and where 500 uh, Palestinian villages were um, were destroyed. When you start with that historical moment and you tell people this is part of the Palestinian narrative. And as we begin the conversation from there, then I think p- things began to shift, can shift in terms of people's openness and understanding of what's really going on today. Because as many have been saying, this has been an ongoing Nakba for these many years. And last, last year was the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. And many uh, Palestinian communities here and as well as in Palestine, uh, we're commemorating that 75th anniversary. But we have to understand, too, that uh, even celebrating the Nakba is criminalized in Palestine. And so um, the dynamics around our understanding their history and being able to embrace that is something that uh, people need to be very aware and conscious of here, particularly in this country. And I think Japanese American in particular can resonate with that because of the struggle that we had to go through to uh, affirm our own story as told from our own people. And even in as much as we uh, were able to uh, win redress in 1988, the struggle for our story continues to be um, uh, dealt with in different regions and parts of the country because of the whole climate around uh, ethnicity and uh, um, uh, racial dynamics and and conversation. Mm. To your point, Reverend Yoshi, I remember during the Muslim ban, in many cases, Asian Americans were right there on the front lines. I mean, they had so many protests during that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Asian Americans and Japanese Americans have been there after 9-11 with the Muslim ban. Uh, those of us who were protesting the entry into the Iraq war knew explicitly that um, the run-up to the Iraq war and the invasion uh, was was based on a war narrative and war propaganda. As 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 we looked at the the morphing of the war on terrorism into now a an attempt that was a pre 9/11 agenda 
of regime change in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us in Japanese American community stood with Lieutenant Aaron Watada, who refused to be deployed to Iraq based on his understanding uh, that it was based on lies and the research that he had done. And history bore him out. And we know now also our history that the invasion into Iraq was based on lies to use the rubrics of the war on terrorism to move in on other political agendas. Maggie, what about your experience? Because you find yourself in a wide range of spaces. Mm-hmm. Talking about the book you wrote about your grandparents um, and other books that you've written, beautiful picture books, which are very much outside of what we're talking about today. And then you've got your Jewish background. So what has your experience been like? Are there any stories that stand out for you that you'd like to share when you're talking about these issues? Gosh, I, I in regard to this like particular conflict, I think a thing that has been very functional for me is remembering that at this point in history, Japanese Americans we have so much privilege now. We're not worried when the police pull us over, you know, that we will be judged for how we look. We're not worried about the FBI coming to find us just because of who we are. And we are in this wave of time, like particularly within children's literature, where discussion of the Japanese incarceration during World War II is more and more common and less and less of a hidden story. And people are really willing to listen to us and leveraging that privilege of people being willing to listen to people for the Palestinians, for the people who largely are not being listened to right now. I think Reverend Yoshi spoke to this so well, and I won't try to retread it, but their stories are suppressed just as ours were. And so it's easy to build a bridge in to understanding how that worked when you talk to people about our history that now they are becoming freshly aware of, but reminding them that this happened a long time ago and we were not previously free to talk about it the same way. Um, and so, you know, when this first started kind of unfurling, I had a policy of like, I'm allowed to argue with one other Jewish person a day just for my own sanity. to, be- <laughs> And that was sort of it. And I've stuck to it. And I think that, you know, there are people... Uh, within my own community that are just Israel has become such a part of their identity that they are unable to step back and look at it critically. But I have been so bolstered and heartened by all of the other Jewish American people who I have been, you know, friends with in my real life, but connected to through this cause, you know, in more recent times um, who see it as starkly and as clearly as I do. And I'm really grateful for their work because I think that there are a lot of Jews who are speaking to this much more forcefully and beautifully than I ever could. And I find myself cribbing notes from how they communicate more often than not. And I've also been really grateful for groups like Suru for Solidarity, Nikkei Resistors, Nikkei Uprising, the Japanese American Families for Justice, all these JA groups that are being so clear and unequivocal in their stance right now. And I'm also really grateful for Densho, for who kind of hold so many of the records of incarceration, for publishing my essay. Um, you know, mm-hmm. candidly, they received a lot of backlash for that essay. There were people trying to cut off their funding because mm-hmm. of it. And mm-hmm. I thought it was a very gently worded essay, just sort of calling for us all to recognize the humanity of the people who are dying right now. 
just as we wished people had recognized our humanity, just as we wished people had recognized our humanity after, you know, a Jewish student murdered a German politician. And that was the justification for Kristallnacht. We wish people had understood our, like, our humanity in that moment. After Pearl Harbor, we wish people had understood and recognized our humanity. After 9-11, we wished people had recognized, you know, other people's humanity. And this just feels like part of such a known pattern. We know that we are always able to justify these kinds of atrocities in the moment. And I don't think that we need to wait for hindsight to be very clear that this was the wrong choice. And so I'm really grateful for other people who are doing, I would say, a beautiful job leading people like me in this moment. And just to let listeners know, you wrote your piece for Densho, and you can find that piece at yourcallradio.org, Justifying the Unjustifiable, Why Japanese Americans Must Stand with Palestine. Densho is a nonprofit started in 1996 with the initial goal of documenting oral histories from Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II. Densho is a Japanese term meaning to pass on to the next generation or to leave a legacy, and they preserve stories of the past for generations of tomorrow. So can you talk more about this? You said that there was pressure on Densho, and you, you did get some backlash to this piece? I personally only received like two or three angry emails Uh when it was initially published. And then when the Seattle times covered it, I got a lot more. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had a call with them in the weeks following it just to kind of re talk them through what I had been thinking and to kind of reframe it for them or like help them find the language for how they would defend it amongst people in their donor class and people who had read it and were angry because uh, behind the scenes, they were receiving a lot of negative feedback. There were people calling for resignations or firings within Densho for publishing this piece at all, which I think is um, indicative of the largely censorious response to anything that advocates any voice that advocates for Palestinian rights right now. And to me, that is a real indication of just how entrenched this issue is. This is, again, very gently worded within a very niche publication. And I was meaning to speak directly to other Japanese Americans. It wasn't a larger call. It was very specific. And to receive that amount of vitriol in response to it was both disappointing but unsurprising given what actual Palestinians face when they try to speak up about anything, about the murders of their own families. They're, you know, told to condemn Hamas before they say anything about anything else that is going on. There's a real insensitivity to them as people and as people who have are the inheritors of this long history of subjugation. And so, you know, what I experienced is just like a very tiny sliver of that and a good way of thinking, like putting in proportion what is actually happening with this conversation. Maggie Takuda Hall is a Jewish Japanese American author of many books, including Love in the Library. It's the true story of her grandparents who met in the Minidoka concentration camp in Jerome, 
Idaho. We've been talking about the piece she wrote for Densho.org called Justifying the Unjustifiable, Why Japanese Americans Must Stand with Palestine. We're also joined today by the Reverend Michael Yoshi, former pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda, California, and co-chair of Friends of Wadi Fakin. In 2009, the Buena Vista United Methodist Church launched a partnership with the Palestinian village of Wadi Fakin. It's in the West Bank, just southwest of Bethlehem. And you can find more about their work at yourcallradio.org. We'll be back after this. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will continue our series on the incarceration of Japanese Americans by speaking with David Mas Masumoto. He's out with a new book, Secret Harvests. He tells the story of his aunt Shizuko, who was disabled and taken as a ward of the state in 1942, just before the rest of his family was forced into World War II concentration camps. For 70 years, they thought she was dead until they received a call one day. She was alive, living just a few miles away from their family farm. We hope you can join us for that show tomorrow. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at kalw.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation, we are talking about how so many Japanese Americans across the country are calling for justice in Palestine. Today, we're joined by the Reverend Michael Yoshi, former pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda, California, and co-chair of Friends of Wadi Fukin, and Maggie Tokuda Hall, author of many books, including also An Octopus, The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea, and The Sea Squad, and Love in the Library. Very beautiful books. Uh, Maggie is a Jewish Japanese American author who wrote a piece for Densho called Justifying the Unjustifiable Why Japanese Americans Must Stand with Palestine. Uh, Reverend Yoshi, can you tell us more, a little bit more about your background? We, d- we just want to thank the Chronicle for uh, writing about what you said at this weekend's Day of Remembrance. And in that piece, uh, they talked a bit about your background, but didn't go deep into it. There are a couple of other stories that we read. But can you tell us more about your family members who were incarcerated during World War II? Uh, sure. Uh, my father's family, uh, the Yoshi family, uh, was from Oakland, California. Uh, my father, Tad, uh, just passed away last year, on, actually on October 8th, oh, ironically, the day after the, the uh, attacks. Um and they had a restaurant in West Oakland and lived behind the restaurant. And, of course, they lost that restaurant, lost their home as they were uh, sent to Tanferan and then to Topaz, uh, Utah. My uh, father's brother, Kiyoshi, was part of the 442. And my father later enlisted in in a different unit uh, later in uh, um uh, the, later during the wartime, my mother's family was from Fresno. They had a farm there, were farmers, and um, they were sent to Jerome, Arkansas during the duration of the war with her parents and her siblings as well. And uh, my parents actually have had a chance to meet our friends from uh, the village of Wadi Fakin in Palestine. And wow. um, they, two of the brothers who had come with us on visits, I'm thinking about maybe eight or nine years ago, actually came to our family uh, birthday celebration for my father. I think it was maybe his 95th birthday celebration. 
And ironically, my father's last public opportunity to be out was in August when our friends from the village of Wadifakin came to California. We had a special gathering at a place called JSA, a Japanese American service organization in the East Bay in Emeryville. And my father came to listen to Atta Manastra and his son Adam speak about their um, continuing struggles in the village of Wadifakin. And he had a chance to give them uh, a high five, a fist pump for um, encouragement of their ongoing uh, struggle there. But the very next day, he um, his health started to fail. And then so through uh, August and September into October, uh, he went downhill and passed away on October mm. 8th. Wow. So, so sorry to hear that. Can you talk more about your parents' response to what was happening in the Palestinian village of Wadi Fukin and then just the West Bank and Gaza more generally? Yeah, I want, I want to just preface that by saying that, you know, back in 81, I had encouraged my parents. I was helping to organize people to come out to speak at the hearings and I encouraged them to come and speak. And at that time, it was really difficult for them to talk about their their situation, their their memories, their history, and they declined. And and so um, I asked them if they'd be okay with me speaking on behalf of the family, which they did. And they came to the hearings all three days uh, with my uncle. They sat through all of the testimony. And and that's when I first became aware of, you know, the notion of post-traumatic stress, stress disorder and understanding that um, there was a lot of trauma that people were holding inside themselves and their memories. And so I think their trajectory of of being able to talk more about their experience has changed over time from 1981 and even with the 1988 um, uh, uh, apology issued by the Civil Liberties Act. I think things began to shift. And I saw that as a pastor, too, as I served Japanese American uh, community to see people being able to open up more about their memories. But it was still painful in that regard. And I think my parents kind of implicitly understood the pain of our Palestinian friends as they met them and began to hear their stories. And, you know, Wadi Fukin is an agricultural farm village, and many Japanese Americans who have come with us on trips there um, have resonated with farm backgrounds in their own families with the farmers there and understanding what it's like to be stifled in trying to make a living uh, when, uh, you know, you have a huge settlement in overlooking uh, uh, the village of Wadi Fukin, one of the largest settlements in the West Bank, Batar Elite, which, which has 60,000 people living there in contrast to 1,500 villagers. And so I think my parents and many other Japanese Americans have resonated with their plight and just trying to be able to live their lives in a normal way without this incursion of, of land confiscation and continual property demolitions taking place. And um, I think it's that visceral kind of feeling of, of uh, one's um, uh, consciousness of one's own historical pain connecting with the pain of others mm-hmm. that forms a different kind of solidarity than just a political one. How did you first connect with the people, the Palestinian people of Wadi Fukin? And for people who've never been to the West Bank, can you talk about what it was like when you first experienced it, to, to see checkpoints, to see the wall, just to see... The restrictions. My, my Can first you talk visit more about to, that? My first visit, uh, I am a United Methodist clergy. I'm retired now. But um, my first visit to the West Bank was actually in 2006 uh, when our Methodist liaison to the West Bank brought Methodists from across the country there for a conference. 
Uh, and she was actually preparing us for the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions movement, which was the uh, Palestinian civil society call for engagement in boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, because of the situation the Palestinians were struggling under at that point in time. And she brought us to um, the region and a conference in Bethlehem, which, of course, is a Palestinian city of both Muslims and Christians. And at that particular moment in time, uh, she was educating us as Methodists on the history um, as well as the current situation where BDS movement was being launched as a nonviolent response to the very violent um, presence of, of military occupation for Palestinians. And um, it, in, in our tour, we visited uh, many different places and saw the uh, draconian reality that Palestinians are living under in terms of the, the occupation and um, the, the land confiscation, property demolition taking place in, in, in many different places, uh, the scourge in East Jerusalem, uh, destruction to Palestinian homes there as well. And it's one thing to know about it consciously. It's one thing to actually see it, you know, present uh, in, in, um, in, in places where you see people living under these devastating circumstances and conditions. Mm -hmm. So uh, absolutely, it was, uh, it was a shock to be in, 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 the, in the region at that time. Mm -hmm. Friends of Wadi Fuqin um, uh, started in 2009, a few years later, as uh, our, our congregation was talking about doing a people-to-people uh, -people relationship with the people of Palestine. And the Methodist uh, liaison who succeeded the former one who left in 2006 came out to consult with us and suggested we partner with this tiny village because we were a small congregation. She said this would be a great way to form people-to-people -people relationships. And we committed to doing that from 2009 uh, by supporting community development projects in the village, uh, committing to bring people there every year on an exposure trip um, for us as Christians to uh, to look at it as a as a spiritual pilgrimage, but with a Palestinian narrative and exposure uh, intentionally, because most trips to the Holy Land, 90% of them do not get a chance to meet Palestinians or get exposed to the Palestinian narrative. And then our third activity is advocacy, as that has been um, uh, asked upon us by folks in the village. So we began that in 2009, and I led our first five trips uh, as we took them each year, and then we've kind of expanded and, and moved uh, beyond one particular church to many other churches. And by the way, I'd like to give a shout out to the Berkeley Methodist Church, which I also served many years ago, which has also been an anchor for the partnership as well, and, and continues to serve today as our fiscal um, agent for the project. The Reverend Michael Yoshi is former pastor of the Bonavista United Methodist Church in Alameda, California. It was founded in 1898 to minister to newly arriving immigrants from Japan. He's co-chair of Friends of Wadi Fokin. Find more information about that at yourcallradio.org. We're also joined today by Maggie Takuda Hall, a Jewish-Japanese-American author of many books in November, she wrote a piece for Densho.org called Justifying the Unjustifiable, Why Japanese Americans Must Stand with Palestine. Maggie, have you been to Israel or the West Bank? I haven't. Um, I had the opportunity when I was, once you're 18, you can apply to go to Birthright, which is like a trip for American Jews to go to Israel. 
And I remember even before becoming kind of more aware of what the situation was like, feeling a real unease with the notion that I had a right to land that I had never been to in my whole life. Like that just didn't make sense to me. And so I just wouldn't participate. And I, in retrospect, I'm really proud of my teenage self for being dubious of that and for sort of rejecting it on the premise. Um, and so, no, I haven't been. And I have to admit that I am not interested in going to Israel. It makes me feel very, uh, a very deep sense of shame for something that my community has committed. Um, but I would be willing to go to the West Bank or to Gaza under different circumstances. How does your family feel about that? Oh, different ways. Right. <laughs> um, like so I many, mean, I think, like so many yes. young, young Jews like yourself. I mean, there's a film about this called Israeliism. Israelism. Israelism, yeah. right, by two yeah. young American Jews who are talking about exactly what you just laid out. Yeah. Um, I would say, like, my experience is not as profound a switch as what Simone Zimmerman talks about. Like, she was raised ultra-Zionist. She went and, like, went to Israel, lived in a kibbutz, like, played dress-up with the IDF, like, that whole deal. And I was never, I never did any of that stuff, nor did my family really encourage me. I would say, like, my family is Zionist with a lowercase z, not an uppercase one, potentially, where, like, they believe in Israel and believe that Jews require a homeland, but they were not quite as... um rabid about it as what Simone Zimmerman talks about in that film. And I think that film is really worth watching for people outside of the Jewish community to understand what so many American Jews were up against for understanding this situation and that it really is a labor of intense curiosity and uh, one that is really difficult to embark on because in doing so you feel like you are abandoning the people who you love and who raised you. It's a really difficult thing to embark on just the same way as I have a lot of sympathy for people who are raised within white supremacist ideologies in the United States and are trying their best to find their way out of it. It's really difficult to disembark from an understanding of the world that you were raised with entirely Can you talk more about writing the book about your grandparents? Can you tell us more about them? And then yeah. a, a little bit more, just that, you know, given how you came to this place and your past and how it shapes your views, tell us more about that also. Yeah. So my grandparents, Tama and George, met in Minidoka, which was an incarceration camp in Jerome, Idaho. Um, Tama was the camp librarian. And the story of how they met, which is that my grandfather would go into the library every day and check out huge stacks of books he had no intention of reading so that he could flirt with her, is a story that I was raised with. And it's one that I've always known. Like, I do not remember the first time I was told that story. It's just a piece of how I understand myself and I understand the world. And it is the most difficult thing I've ever written. Um, because when you write fiction, at the end of the day, you are only beholden to yourself. And if you fail, like that's very manageable, I feel like emotionally. <laughs> if something doesn't work quite the way that you wanted it to, it's just a lesson for next time. 
But in this case, writing their story and writing it after they had passed, uh, George passed when I was a baby, but Tama had passed in like 2012. And I wrote this book in 2016 or early 2017, excuse me. Um, I felt a real obligation to make sure that I was doing them justice and not just them, but all of the 125,000 Japanese Americans who were incarcerated with them, that yes, there was this beautiful love story, but also the circumstances that it took place in were atrocious and were unforgivable. And there is no silver lining to that situation. Their love story does not justify the cruelty that was done upon all of these families. And making sure that that was present on the page, every page of that book, was not just a craft choice, but like an ethical and philosophical one. And I'm really grateful that I was partnered with Yazi Mamura, who, the illustrator of this book, who had to do a lot of really heavy lifting and was so respectful and interested in the prospect of telling this story as honestly as possible so that we could get across to kids the message that there is state-sanctioned unfair violence done upon groups of people in the United States solely based on racism, Mm -hmm. but that also the people that those sorts of policies target are so powerful and so resilient that they can do something as beautiful as falling in love in a prison camp. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so I think about their story a lot, and I think about the love stories that are ended in Gaza because... These people have just been facing annihilation. Mm. And I think, you know, what what stories will their grandchildren tell us that will stop us in our tracks and remind us of the horrors that are being done upon them? Mm. I think, you know, this is an unusual circumstance. This is the first time when we've ever watched a genocide be live streamed just as a globe, like we, as a species, we've never had this much access to the horrors of war before. We used to rely on these oral histories to try to get across what this is like. We no longer have that luxury of waiting to understand what it is like. We know right now. And so when I watch it, I feel a really powerful obligation to leverage whatever communities I can to fight against this because I think of people like my grandparents and how I wish that people had done the same for, I know people did. I don't mean to erase the the work of people who were protesting the incarceration when it happened, but they were a, a small minority. And I feel an obligation to make sure that this time around that voice is not the minority. We have a question from a caller who couldn't stand the line, who says, I have a very curious and empathetic seven-year-old grandchild. How do I explain Mm -hmm. Gaza and Japanese internment to a seven-year-old without scaring him? Imagine what your thoughts. Yeah. I think sometimes when we're worried about telling our kids about upsetting things, it's because we want to protect them, like because we love them and we don't want to see anything that makes the smile fall from their face. And I'm a parent of really little kids. I understand that. I understand that impulse. But we should remember that we are helping them become better, wiser, more resilient versions of themselves when we tell them the truth. That doesn't mean you need to get graphic in your descriptions. It doesn't mean showing them footage of what's going on, but using frank and clear language that this is a genocide and a genocide means when a group of people are targeted because of who they are to be killed. 
and that that is unjust and that I'm fighting against it or what, however, whatever language you want to use with them. It's important to tell them the truth. When I was shopping loving love and the library around, it got rejected a lot of places because they said that the audience was too young for that story, hmm. that I had written it as a picture book was rejected on many occasions. They said, we would love for you to write this story, but we want you to write it as a young adult novel. And I refused to because I understand that kids are capable of understanding this story. I know that because I was raised with this story and I'm not an exceptionally bright person and I was a normal kid, but my parents were brave enough to tell me the truth. And that has created a foundation for a lot of understanding, even when it went past what my parents have taught me. And I hope that, you know, in those moments, it is a little difficult, but just remember that you are helping them become the best version of themselves. The world is unjust and it is full of cruelty and pretending that that doesn't exist, doesn't keep our kids safe from that cruelty. It only makes them feel like they've been lied to later on. Reverend Yoshi, I would agree with everything what? that with Maggie said and, and also underscore the fact that for seven-year-olds to learn the stories of other children around the world. And so how many stories of children in Gaza who are not now able to live out their dreams that they have had um, because their lives have been taken. And I think it's it's important for our young people uh, at, at an early age to know that there are children living in different contexts around the world. Reverend Yoshi, final thoughts from you. We've got about a minute left. Uh, I, I just found a new report by a number of health experts, including Johns Hopkins, the London School of Hygiene, uh, and this is from Zachary Foster, who's a historian of Palestine. This report finds that it is possible that over 58,000 Palestinians will die in the next six months from traumatic wounds, infectious diseases, and other deaths that would be preventable if a ceasefire were to go into effect immediately. Over 58,000 Palestinians in the next six months. What are your thoughts about where this is going? We have about a minute left. Well, I believe that, that, that the situation in Gaza and all of Palestine is the moral compass for our world today. And I believe that's why Japanese Americans are speaking up and rising up as uh, with and joining the throngs of people around the world who are calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And I extend that to the whole West Bank and East Jerusalem as well, because uh, the war is going on uh, against all of Palestine, not just in Gaza, but all of Palestine. And, and therefore, this is a very important, critical moment for all of us to uh, find our moral compass and find our moral center. Uh, because as you say, lives are being taken every day and more and more in the days to come. Hmm. But there's no, there's no resolution to this until there is a ceasefire first and then uh, uh, humanitarian aid to come into Gaza and then resolving the historic issues that are the root cause of the situation now. Reverend Michael Yoshi is former pastor of the Buena Vista United Methodist Church in Alameda and co-chair of Friends of Wadi Fukin. Maggie Tokuda Hall is a Jewish-Japanese-American author who wrote a piece for Densho.org called Justifying the Unjustifiable, Why Japanese-Americans Must Stand with Palestine. Reverend Yoshi and Maggie, thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Reverend Yoshi, it was such an honor to speak on this with you. Likewise. 
Thank you. And you can find more about their work at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Savannah Harriman-Pote for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And thank you so much for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's Your Call.